let's face it, Bart, we are living in a post-truth anti-evidence world. Uh, people don't check their facts. They're driven by ideology. So really being able to provide, provide leaders with hard data and well-grounded research insights is critical. So we're very, we're very passionate about it. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. So my guest on the Inspire podcast today, uh, I feel very honored to have Susan Black, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Conference Board of Canada, talking to me for our kickoff episode of Season 4. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me, Bart. I'm delighted to be here. Just to, to introduce you, I mean, you are uh, tremendously credentialed. I know you have a BA from Yale, you're an MBA from Harvard. And uh, just to add to the, uh, the trifecta, you've got a PhD in organizational studies. So uh, tremend tremendous credentials, and now you lead the Conference Board of Canada. So for those who don't know what CBOC is, can you just give us the Coles notes of what the organization does? Sure. So the Conference Board of Canada is one of Canada's largest independent research organizations. And we're one of the oldest, too. We were started in the mid-50s by four economists sitting in an office in Montreal. Today, we work in nine knowledge domains, if you will. So we do research in economics, education and skills, human resources, health, inclusion, indigenous and northern communities, innovation, immigration, sustainability. And yes, that is a very <laughs> long and big list, but it used to be much larger. So what we've done over the last few years is really focus to those areas that are key for leaders in our country. And we provide two kinds of research. So we provide a lot of basic data and basic analytics and basic forecasting that leaders rely on year after year to make decisions. So an example would be most of the provincial finance ministries use our economic forecasts as an important element in estimating equalization payments. The other kind of research we really spend a lot of time and effort focusing on we uh, internally refer to as our wicked problem. So a wicked problem is in is an issue that Canadian leaders face. It's been around for a long time. It's complex. No one solved it. There are different viewpoints, and it affects a big part of the population. Uh, so an example of that is how are we going to get Canadians ready for the future of work? How are we going to upskill and reskill the country? What are those career transition paths people need to take? So as part of a funding that came to us through the Future Skills Centre, where we're a consortium partner, we created a portal called Opportunex that maps 450 occupations across a number of different dimensions. And you can go in there, you can see where else could I go that wouldn't take me uh, lots, of, lots of years to retrain or require a big salary cut or so on. It's got 13 billion cells of data behind it. So wow. that's the kind of work we do. And right. we've, always, we've always been passionate about our work, but I think in the times we live in, it's even more important <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, to do what we do, because let's face it, Bart, we are living in a post-truth, anti-evidence world. <laughs> uh, people mm -hmm. don't check their facts. They're driven by ideology. 
So really being able to provide, provide leaders with hard data and well-grounded research insights is critical. So we're very, we're very passionate about it. Well, I think you're, you're right that, you know, there's, there's two things that resonate with me, you know, as someone who's had the opportunity to work with leaders for two decades. You know, the first is that um, leaders really do need now more than ever um, vetted data research to make great decisions. And I think the second thing is, I love this, this concept that you're talking about of wicked problems, you know, that, that the, mm-hmm. the problems that we're wrestling with as, as leaders, whether they're leaders of government, leaders of corporations, are increasingly complex and defy a simple solution. So I, I think, you know, this kind of twin need that you serve is why I want to have you on the podcast, because, you know, so many people who listen are really grappling with how do I lead today? You know, how do I, mm-hmm. and they may not be tackling the, the wicked problems your clients are, but they all, they all have a wicked problem of their own, you know, whether it's like, how do I keep my people from resigning, you know, or, mm-hmm. or how do I engage a workforce that, you know, half of them want to be in the office, half of them never want to set foot again. And I think, you know, you, you bring some great perspective. So I thought we could actually dive in, you know, because you sit at this point where you talk to so many leaders and really tackle like what are these big challenges? What are the leaders and clients that you serve coming to you and saying, help us? What would be the first one? Well, I think everybody is looking at the level of turnover these days. So the war for talent got coined, I believe it was in the late 90s by some McKinsey consultants, and it's been with us ever since then. But the pandemic has escalated and accelerated that. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say we are in the same kind of situation that the um, United States finds themselves in. But we know from our research that uh, voluntary turnover is up significantly in particular sectors. So knowledge-based industries, um, you know, industries that require professional degrees like engineering or accounting, health, those, those uh, turnover rates have, have really dramatically mm-hmm. skyrocketed last year. Um, we know that um, that creates a lot of pressure on organizations to figure out how to how to stem the turnover, how to get people to um, stay the course, if you will. Mm-hmm. The other thing that goes with that that was very troubling in a, some work we did last year was absenteeism. So if we um, we did a, a study of over 200 organizations and we asked them a lot of different questions about turnover and absenteeism and retirement and engagement and so on. And what we found was that in, with large organizations, the turnover wasn't uh, wasn't overall tremendously high, but absenteeism had had almost doubled. And what that suggests is that there's a lot of what we would call presenteeism in organizations. <laughs> presenteeism. So people, yeah. so you <laughs> there, but not working, there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People who are there, but they're not committed. So, mm. so a big uh, question that we hear from uh, members of our HR councils and members of our uh, other executive councils is how do I keep my people engaged? Mm-hmm. What do I do in these times when there is more uncertainty around uh, the work environment than, than frankly, most of us has, have faced in our careers? So that's a big challenge. Yeah. And, and maybe we could just tackle that first one. So uh, I think that's something that everyone is wrestling with it, whether it's, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, law firms were 
you know, you'll have an associate just get a call from a U.S. firm and say, hey, why don't you just do the same work? We'll ship you the laptop. We'll double your pay. And they're gone yeah. the next day. Uh, yep. To people, I have a, a, a friend who runs a warehouse, third-party logistics business. And he says, you know, Amazon will set up shop and boom, people will literally not come to work one day and just start going to the Amazon warehouse. I mean, I think every every industry is facing that turnover and, as you said, the absenteeism. So what advice would you both in your own expertise and in the capacity as CEO of the conference board give to leaders who are wrestling with this challenge today? Well, the first thing I would say is understand what's driving your turnover, because it'll be different factors in different organizations. So one of the things we're seeing, again, more out of the U.S. than here, is that large part of that great resignation is people are in crappy jobs with crappy work conditions. So let's face it, if you're not going to pay people decently or if you're going to create other working conditions that are very difficult, this is the time when you're going to lose them. Mm. And so there, there is going to be a big you know, systemic change, I think, about the nature of uh, and the conditions associated with some of these lower lower wage essential mm-hmm. jobs. That's not going to continue. So if that's what's driving you, then, you know, you should figure that out. It doesn't out matter how you inspiring you are if you're if, people, exactly. if it's a crappy job. Well, <laughs> it's a crappy job and if it's low paid. We have known literally for decades that paying people more is not a motivator. It is it is, uh, I think the old phrase was a hygiene factor. Hmm. If you're, it, it doesn't engage you, doesn't make you want to give that discretionary effort. There are a couple of exceptions to that, but generally for most people it doesn't. But if you don't think you're paid fairly, it can really demotivate you. Hmm. So what is the reason? Uh, is it compensation? Is it the fact that perhaps you've got a cadre of managers who aren't very good hmm. or who are abusive or who are bullying? It was Gallup that first coined the insight came up the insight that people don't leave companies, they leave their managers. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you have to figure out what your reason okay. is. Um, the second thing I would say is understand that some turnover is normal hmm. and it's going to be higher and should, probably should be higher in certain sectors than others. So if you're an executive who's seeing turnover rise in, in a way they um, aren't accustomed to, step back and think, is this the new normal mm. for me? So, and that may not be a bad thing, is what you're saying. You it, may simply oh, that exactly. just may be a, a reality. I, I mean, I know personally. You know, when I started growing the Humphrey Group, I had this kind of vision that we would keep everyone forever. And you know, it took me a while to realize, like, this is not healthy for the company or for the people here. It's really no, healthy. it's not. And, and so it's, but I had to go and adapt my thinking. So it sounds like that's happening on a bigger scale now for, for all industries or for some industries that you're saying? Well, absolutely. So if you're a manager in one of these organizations where your turnover was at 15 or 20 or even today, 25%, mm-hmm. which is a little too high, don't run around with your hair on fire saying that, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Understand where the turnover is coming from. And then you have to structure your organization so it's resilient around that turnover. So you have to expect it, which means you have to have workforce planning that mm-hmm. gives you that slack in the system. Because there are two big problems with turnover. You know, the first is you lose institutional memory. And the second, and I apologize, first and second doesn't mean an order of priority. But the the other one, mm-hmm. I'll say, is the work has to be either stopped, deferred, or parceled out to other people, causing more stress for them. So you want to structure your organization so that you're ready for that because it is inevitable. And as you say, it's it's a good thing in most places mm-hmm. to have some turnover. Where I'm focusing my time is trying to make sure the organization has resilience in the face of this turnover. So what I'm hearing, you know, for for leaders listening is it's almost, you know, 
understand it. It's not all created equally. And, mm-hmm. and therefore, um, you know, and, and even what kind of turnover you may, you may not actually have to be as worried. Uh, and then be prepared to adapt your mindset so that, you know, there is a new normal that might not be one where the sky is falling. So it's really kind of a big mindset shift for leaders now that they need to embrace. Yeah. And you've got to fuel it with data. You have to look at mm. your own turnover and you have to be realistic about where it is hurting you. And that is, again, it's when you have to defer business or you have to put too much of a burden on another colleague. We have hmm. to really plan for those things because that's a it can become a vicious cycle. People get burned out trying to carry the load for the rest. What What would be the one piece of advice you'd give to the important messaging that leaders should be delivering around this war for talent today? I think there are a number of messages. I think number one, uh, acknowledge that it's real and that you're focused on bringing in the best talent you can bring in because everybody wants to work with talented colleagues. So I think they, I think employees need to know you're aware of it and you're looking at it and you're focusing on it and you're doing things. There's nothing worse than having a, a senior leadership team that it, it has their head and you know, stuck in the sand. Um, so I think that's an important message. Uh, I think the the other message is to be clear if you're exiting people, which can happen, which is happening much more in the pandemic, uh, in the early days when companies had to structure, you have to be clear why you're exiting because uh, pe- that makes people very nervous. And that's true, not just during the pandemic, but if there's organizational restructuring or so on. And so you wanna calm people down and, and make sure they understand it's because a job has gone away or someone has um, demonstrated they don't fit with the values or uh, or it's a performance. And you never talk about people individually, but people need to know the ground rules for that so that they can feel secure. So I think hmm, uh, to recap, you know, tell people you're working on it. You see that turnover. You, you are always figuring out ways to make the organization more resilient and to bring in, uh, bring in colleagues who are great to work with. And for those who, if you're in that situation where you, you do have to exit, be clear on why. A, a second big challenge, and you know, when we did our planning call that you raised or, or big topic that leaders are wrestling with and turning to conference board for is this shift that I can't believe we're two years into it, but the shift to virtual and digital. So tell me about like what you're seeing and researching, what your data is telling you that leaders should be aware of. Well, what we're seeing is is organizations that have a workforce that is largely office-based or have a significant portion of their workforce in offices are really struggling with that right now. Mm. And I think we were we were going down a path where it looked like people were going to come back yes. in a very phased way. And then Omicron hit, and now everything's up in the air. And I think this last go-round with Omicron has made some people really nervous about mm-hmm. coming back in at all. And that presents a challenge as leaders we've never seen. We, you know, this has been a phenomenal global grand experiment in telecommuting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you do want to bring people together. You And many organizations do have a belief that it's important for them to be in the office at least two days, at least three days. So how do you accommodate that? And how do you, how do you set yourself up for that? Lots of planning was done early days in the pandemic, mm-hmm. but we're going to schedule and we're going to fix the HVAC and so on. Now I think it's different. And now I think uh, in some places, at least, it is about people's comfort levels. So do you think then, I mean, it's so hard to predict, but is your sense that things have irrevocably changed and that organizations will never, you know, even if 
the pandemic recedes, go back to the way it was, or will we? What do you hear when you talk to this wide swath of clients? I think for many clients, there is now irrefutable evidence that flexible work arrangements work. And for many years, if you were an organization who was trying to provide more flexibility, often related to your diversity strategy, you get a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. There was this fundamental, deeply entrenched belief going back decades that said, if I can't see you at your desk or in the office, I don't believe you're working. It was very time-based. It was very tenure-based. It wasn't really performance-based. And that's just blown up in the last two Mm -hmm. years. No one can sit and credibly say people don't work well remotely. People work Mm -hmm. absolutely fine remotely. Some people uh, work really well. Some people, granted, don't work well. There's a, it's a spectrum, right? It's a bell curve, but most people and most organizations keep going. Uh, that body of evidence that's irrefutable combined with people now having a taste of what it's like not to have long commutes and yes. not to have to, you know, put a tie on every day means your employers are going to have to offer a different value proposition around this. It's another topic and I want to get your thoughts on is generational expectations. I mean, we're now in this, you know, time when we have more generations working together in the workforce and it's, you know, coming up against this pandemic and this new way of working. So what are you seeing when you look at this, um, these differing expectations? Is it that the younger generations prefer virtual, the older don't? Or, or is that just kind of a false premise? Love to get your thoughts. Uh, I think that's a false premise. I think you have to ask people as individuals what they like. Mm-hmm. I think for some younger folks, uh, this is very challenging and they prefer to be back in the office for any number of practical reasons. Number one, they may live in a very small place where it's not comfortable to be working from home all the time. Mm-hmm. It could be in a studio apartment. You could be with a partner in a small one bedroom. So they want to get into the office. I think often at that stage of your career, a lot of your social life revolves around work. Mm-hmm. I certainly think back to my I early days mine, and that was yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you can't physically get together with people, that's not great either. So I think there are younger people who want to be in the office. I think also, though, if you look at people, people's personalities, we have introverts and extroverts. I, I lead an organization that is highly populated by introverts, and that's of every generation. And they like you know, most of our people certainly want to be out of the office at least part of the time. Right. So you've <laughs> got to go back. And I think this is one of the places where we it, it doesn't make sense to generalize. Find out what your for, workforce wants across across generations. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what's best. Are there any? OK, so we can put aside this idea that, you know, generation determines desire to be in person. Are there any broad uh, commonalities in what generations might want versus other generations that yeah. you find in your research? You know, there's been a lot of research on generational diversity going back at least two decades now. And notwithstanding the differences, uh, there are more commonalities and differences. Hmm, I think one of the things that brings generations together now is a sense of purpose, is is a desire to be working in a place where your personal values are at least aligned. They don't Mm -hmm. have to be exactly the same, but they have to not be in conflict. I think people, everybody needs that. I think everybody needs to be working in a place where they are respected and valued. So Mm -hmm. I think all the concepts we now understand that are so important coming out of all the work in diversity and inclusion and equity 
um, impact everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants totally. to feel they belong. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to be respected. Everybody wants to feel they can be who they are. They can be authentic in the workplace. So I think that's another commonality. And then as I, I think I just alluded to, you want good managers, period. Any differences that may exist across generations really are not material uh, in the sense that the commonalities are and the commonalities mm-hmm. of what people want and need uh, really cut across. Is that right? That would be a, a great way of summarizing it. We have more in common um, than we have. We have more commonalities and differences, and everybody wants to work in a respectful, inclusive uh, work environment where they can do their best work or at least do work they feel is meaningful. So so let's tie these these two kind of big themes that you are doing research into. One is the shift to virtual and the challenges posing organizations and navigating not the return to the past, but the path to the new normal. And then the broad emerging needs of these different generations. What advice would you give to individual leaders listening about how to lead and inspire through this uh, this kind of murky path forward? The first thing I would say is it takes more managerial effort to do this than anything you've done in the past, especially if a large part of your workforce is virtual, because you have to do things like check in more. You have to communicate more. The table stakes around transparency are higher than they've ever been. Remember, there's no water cooler now. There's right. no hallway for people to congregate in. So my advice would be uh, to lean into that communication and the checking in and the the care and feeding of your employees in a way that you haven't Hmm. ever thought of. Um, We spent a lot of time at the conference board doing that because we made the decision to go virtual first so early Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't have to spend time thinking about, are we going to fix the... Uh, we're going to fix the um, HVAC system. Are we going to put arrows on the floor? Right. We really focused on what are the things tactically as well as strategically we can do to bind people who are only going to meet for a long time virtually. So we, we, we're we a small organization, less than 200 people, but we have a full-time internal communications manager who does nothing but figure out these different ways to communicate. We get everybody on the phone once a week for a half-hour huddle. I personally now do the do a two hour onboarding session once a month with any wow. new employees come in. Amazing. So we and individual managers have many more check ins with individual employees and team meetings. So you got to lean into that. And that's not always it's not every manager's cup of tea. I have heard horror stories about people who have joined organizations in the last year and have just been left adrift. Haven't uh, you know? Forget about it. they didn't they haven't met anyone virtually, uh, in person rather, um, they haven't even had guidance or coaching on where to find things. We've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out for people and mm-hmm. help them really integrate. So that that's probably my biggest piece of advice to leaders as we navigate our way through the pandemic. And it's also probably why so many managers report burnout because there are mm-hmm. the demands on them to do that. As you said, the workload to engage in this virtual way is much higher, much higher, much higher. So, well, so and, uh, can I just add one thing to that? Just to add to that, the demands on them are higher also because employees are facing uncertainty and anxiety around this because we've seen a rise in mental health issues too. So as you have a colleague or a staff member who is experiencing this, you have to spend more time, mm-hmm. more time with them, more time with HR and so on. So overall, 
the, de- the, the classic managerial demands have just risen for everyone. You mentioned that the increased focus, not only in diversity, uh, and I know you spent some time leading catalysts and organizations produced some great data on the advancement or perhaps lack thereof of women in uh, representation in the world. Uh, but it's not just diversity now, it's inclusion. And the mm-hmm. idea that when you know we're passionate at the Humphrey Group about diversity and inclusion, our, our biggest new offering in the last two years is inclusive leadership. Because I think we, like many organizations, said, look, diversity is not enough. It's, you bring people in, but they have to be heard. They have to feel valued. So what are you hearing as the pandemic, you know, is two years in, what are, what research is the conference board doing around diversity, equity, inclusion that you're sharing with your clients? Well, we do have some work. It's coming out in the next little while, so I'm not going to preempt that. <laughs> Sneak, preview. Say, Sneak preview. Sneak yeah. preview. <laughs> um, and is it, I, is it free? Can people get a snapshot of it? Yes, when it comes there, will be a, there will certainly be a snapshot Great. on the website. Here's what I would say. And I've been, as you said, I led Catalyst. I was, I've been in this field even before doing that, bringing them to Canada. You know, the, there's good news and there's disheartening news. So the good news is that more than ever, organizations are paying attention to the concepts of diversity and inclusion and increasingly now equity, fine. Uh, and that attention's being paid from the top of the house all the way through. And it's across organizations. For many, many years, it was the bigger organizations that could, frankly, afford to do this and were more sophisticated mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. So more attention being um, being paid to this, which is good, which means there's more change internally around these inclusion practices. So I think many managers now are more heightened, uh, have more heightened sensitivity to things like microaggressions, micro inequities, uh, more uh, sensitivity around um, just a tape in their head that says, am I treating people fairly? Am I being, Mm -hmm. am I taking the same people to lunch all the time? When I look at who I'm grooming, uh, is it people who just look like me? So I think that's increasing too. Having said that, when I look at representation, the diversity side of things, it moves very slowly. Mm-hmm. And I think we still struggle with unconscious bias. When I started mm-hmm. out in this field, we used to call it stereotyping. It's the same right. thing. It's just unconscious bias, more sophisticated and more nuanced and, and, and in today's world, appropriate way of describing it. But there are still many unconscious biases out there that handicap people. Uh, the second thing I would say that hopefully everybody's becoming more sophisticated and aware of is that diversity is about everybody. And that includes white men. Mm-hmm. Diversity is about people as individuals. No single group is a monolith. Not all women are the same. Not all black people are the same and so on. So I think we're getting better. I think we're making progress, but it's still slow. It is slow. I mean, I think I had, um, uh, the head of black North, uh, the Habo mm-hmm. Omar on, and she said, you know, this is a multi-generational challenge. And ta- uh, she was yeah. talking about, you know, black representation and leadership, mm-hmm. but I think it really applies, um, you know, to all diversity. And I think your point about, it's not just about one group, everyone needs to be part of it and empowered to feel good about making a difference and an impact. Yeah. People have more power, which are traditionally, and in many places, still white men, mm-hmm. They need to be part of the solution here. And in order to mm. facilitate that, there are going to be different ways in which they may from time to time not feel included, or they may 
not have the understanding they wish they had. So we have to remember to bring people along. One of the fears I have about the current climate around EDI is that it does seem fertile for a fostering backlash. Hmm. And that's not that's not a good thing for hmm. any of us. Talk, talk a people, bit about that, because I think many people are seeing that backlash play out in some cases. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it, this, is, this happens periodically over the years, the decades, as we make progress with uh, EDI, it gets a little harder at times. I think one of the things that I'm observing now is people from different groups, be it, be it women, be it Indigenous, First Nations people, be it Black people, and so on, often, particularly around racialized groups, have had terrible community histories, right? Really mm -hmm. dreadful things have been done systematically and systemically for decades now. And I think when you come from a community like that, you have a great sensitivity, as you should, around these things that can take place mm -hmm. and so on. But, and I, I feel their pain in this, there's a frustration around, why do I have to keep explaining my pain to you? Right. And they're right, you know, they're right. But I also don't think the answer is just go Google it. And I've literally hmm. heard people say that now. So we have to find a way to work together to continue that dialogue. One of the things we do at the conference board, we're very small, so we don't have budget and, and for big, you know, complex, uh, fancy diversity programs. But we decided one thing we wanted to do to help everybody understand these issues in a way that didn't put a burden on people from that group. Nobody wants to be the poster mm -hmm. child from their group and we shouldn't be asking them. We do a session once a month on a particular EDI topic. So in December, to commemorate the um, uh, Montreal massacre, it was on gender violence. We've done it on Indigenous First Nations um, rights and reconciliation. So we do a one hour in the morning. That's an overview, a discussion. Sometimes we have an external speaker. And then we have a session in the afternoon for anybody else who wants hmm. to come back and have a safe space hmm. to discuss these things. And we bring in an outside facilitator for that. So I actually am a big believer that you have to keep people talking and increasing their understanding and awareness. And I'm very sympathetic and, and completely agree we should not be making individuals from different uh, underrepresented or marginalized carry, groups. Carry that uh, burden. Carry, yeah. But, hmm. but by the same token, I, I don't think it's helpful to say, go figure it out on your own and, or go Google it. Like that's not going to help yeah. anyone. It, it, it is tough work and it's, it's painful. I mean, having gone through training myself, it's, it's, you know, I'm a, I guess I'm now middle-aged white, white, I'm certainly white, but I'm now middle-aged <laughs> white man <laughs> with a huge amount of privilege. It's very difficult, you know, to have the conversations. And I, I lead a company that's passionate about equity and diversity inclusion so it's um and it's not easy i think that's we went through a, a couple sessions over the last year with a with a firm um and they said you know there's no outcome out of this other than doing the work is the outcome and i thought that was right. pretty profound you know that as business leaders we often think you know this is going to achieve something <laughs> you know and the, to have right off the bat you know just doing this as the achievement is is sobering because it speaks to the the scope of the challenge and mm -hmm. and I, when you think about doing that work and you think about being privileged, whether it's by virtue of your race, your educational status, your income, uh, some places it might be your age, uh, none of us wants to be wrong. None of us wants to be accused of being sexist, racist, ageist, ableist, and so on. So there's a lot, everybody has a, a big stake in the game and 
that heightens emotions and it makes it hard for people to do that work. And we, I, I don't know anything other, I don't have a solution other than just got to do it. And we have to be, uh, we have to be a little bit forgiving of everybody as they stumble through and people do feel like they stumble through and they and, probably and are. They are. And I think that that's a really good piece of advice for leaders who want to lead through this to create that sense that we're going to stumble, but we just have to keep going. Yeah. I mean, I know I, as someone who's been studying this since the mid nineties, I continue to learn every day and I continue to rethink, how should I do this? And it is uncomfortable. And I go, oh, I should have known better. Right. And I see that sometimes. And we don't like that feeling, but it's what it is. You have to move forward and you have to learn. Yeah, and better, better to have that feeling and adjust than yeah, never, exactly. to, never to go there. The, the last topic I want to tackle, because we could go on forever, we could do this for, for hours and maybe yeah. maybe we should sometime, but it's really, it's quite an amorphous topic, but it's the future of work. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we are headed into, I, you know, I did the podcast a couple of years ago before COVID with a partner at Mercer who literally was his role was to head up the future of work practice. So I, I should get him back on and see we could compare predictions. But I think, you know, the volatility that we've been through, this concept of VUCA, uh, you know, extreme mm -hmm. volatility, yeah. uncertainty uh, that we're, we're living with, people are looking for some clarity. So you and the conference board spend time looking at the future. How are you thinking about the future of work? Um, and what are you sharing with your clients? Well, one thing we are pretty certain about is everybody is going to have multiple careers. And the sooner and earlier people understand that and develop the skill set to adapt, the better off we're all going to be. We've known for a long time now that the, the model of you join a big company and you stay for 40 years and you get a gold watch. Is right. Over. It's gone. It's gone. Uh, although you still have some people who've been in companies a long time, so there's still a vestige of that. But increasingly it has to be about being nimble mm -hmm. and being an agent with your own career and i think that's going to be hard for us to do because mm -hmm. it's a nice lofty thing to say but let's let's face reality some people do not have the economic means mm -hmm. to easily change careers or mm -hmm. jobs or upskill they simply don't sometimes we know this from our future skills research there aren't the support mechanisms in place to do that so if you are a single mother and you live uh, in a part mm -hmm. of town that doesn't have good transportation, you may have a hard time getting to a school, a training facility, a job that helps you. You may not have easy access to childcare. So there are a lot of things that have to shift in this country mm -hmm. in order to enable the whole population to ready themselves for this new this new working model that, that will be with us for decades. And, and so maybe a final thought for leaders. I mean, let's We've been talking a lot about how leaders can lead and inspire others through these, you know, wicked problems or you know, broad challenges. That I think really touch everyone, regardless of industry. But let's look at leaders for themselves. You know, leaders are driven; they're ambitious. As you look at a future where they will have multiple careers, if you will, or switch industries or switch company, what advice would you give to them for their own growth and success? That's a great question. Uh, and you're talking to someone who has worked across, yeah. I think I've worked in real estate and finance right. and insurance and retail and research. And I've worked with big publicly traded companies and I've worked with small nonprofits right. and I've sat on boards. And, so no gold watch so is coming for you. <laughs> yeah, trust me. Buy your own no gold, gold watch. <laughs> I, was, I was an early adopter um, in an unintentional right. way uh, in this. So I, I would say the thing that's most important 
for leaders to really understand as they navigate different industries and different paths is uh, have your values hmm. be front and center. I do think one of the things we're facing today is a crisis of character hmm. across all our leadership bodies, government, business, you you name it. I think people are not focused on communal values the way we once were. I think there are tremendous lapses in integrity. I think people who are leaders have an obligation to put the organization or the community or the polity's agenda first and foremost and not their own. And I don't think we see that. I think a return to that kind of character-driven leadership mm. is imperative for us going forward. So that would be my advice. Is know it. your own values. Know your own values. Live them. Express them. Hold yourself accountable for them. We spent a lot of time at the conference board on our values when I came in three, four years ago mm -hmm. now. They're available on our website. Anybody who wants to go yeah, and we see can, them can We can see link them. them in our show notes as well. Please do. But we embed them in everything. And one of the things I say to my colleagues is these are values we want to live by because this is the kind of organization we want. But from time to time, for some of us, they're going to be aspirational. And we're not going to get it perfect every day, but let's keep it front and center. So that would be my I love one it. overriding piece of advice for I leaders love it. in these times. Because leaders, you know, when you, whether you switch industries or companies or you're, you're dealing with these incredibly thorny problems, your values are what will see you through. And I do think Absolutely. You know, it's what we need more of. So, Susan, this, this is tremendous. I mean, I can see you know, the way that you're, you and the team at the conference board have begun to reshape the business to support leaders is, is just invaluable. And I know most, most companies have to pay big dollars to get your research, but I appreciate you, <laughs> you kind of giving it to me and my listeners for free. I, I'm learning a lot. Um, and so incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Bart. It was a lot of fun. And these are topics I feel very passionate about. And so always happy to be here. And we do make much of our research available for everybody because we are a national institution and our job is to serve leaders in this country and help them make better decisions. So we, we try and live that every day. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Susan Black. What a great way to kick off season four of the Inspire podcast, tackling some of the broad challenges that leaders are facing in Canada and really the world, you know, grounded in day then with some tangible things that you can do. I really appreciate her coming on the pod. My next guest, uh, who will be on the podcast coming up in two weeks, is Tony Martiginetti. And Tony is the head of Inspired Purpose Coaching. And he joins me to talk. We kind of had a macro conversation this week. And then in two weeks, we'll have a conversation more of an individual leader, like what is the leader's journey? How do you deal with the fact that you might have been climbing a mountain and then get to the top and realize you were on the wrong mountain and re-energize your sense of purpose? So great uh, balance to the call we had today. And uh, I know you'll enjoy it. So thanks again for listening to the Inspire Podcast. <laughs>